0: Well, yesterday we had what is now being coined a hawkish uh, interest rate cut by the Fed. Today, we got some mixed uh, economic news. Consumer perhaps a little bit uh, weaker than expected. The question is, what does this mean for fixed income markets going forward? To address that, we welcome Tony Rodriguez, head of fixed income strategy at Nuveen. He joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Tony, thanks so much for joining us. Let's just start with what we got yesterday from the Fed and from Chairman Powell. What was your key takeaway?
2: I think my key takeaway was that I thought that the key was that they did not communicate a very hawkish ease. And I think they kind of were able to thread that needle a little bit. I know it's being referred to as a, as a hawkish ease, but they did talk in the press conference very much about how the three things that they consider to be the rationale for lowering rates uh, were, you know, global growth, trade uncertainty and that inflation is going to be, is not at their target. And they reemphasize that they are not going to raise rates until inflation really exceeds their target because they talk about a symmetric um, target. So I think that kind of gave the market the idea that, look, they are not going to raise rates. The bar for that is enormously high. And the risks remain really unaddressed in terms of weaker global growth and in terms of trade uncertainty. So I think it's more than likely that you, we believe you'll see them actually come back to the market to cut rates again in the first half of next year because of those two concerns on trade and on global growth.
1: Everyone seems to agree that the risk to uh, not cut enough is much bigger than uh, cutting too quickly. That seems to be what everyone is saying, is that basically, if you err on the side of easing, uh, that's just fine. My concern is that no one's talking about moral hazard anymore in any way, shape, or form. Are we seeing anything in credit markets that indicates that perhaps companies are taking advantage of this easy money era that has gone on uh, for a very long time and will continue for a very long time?
2: Yeah, so in the credit markets, I'd say what you're seeing is certainly elevated levels of debt, debt to cash flow, any kind of metric you look at has risen, but they are not at troubling levels. Okay, so companies have, I think, just fundamentally begun to target a different capital structure. Whereas years ago, people would have said, double A or single A is where I want my balance sheet to be. And you in fact, even had an occasional triple A corporate credit out there. I think pretty much financial kind of theory today is triple B is the optimal place for me to be. We don't care about being double A at all. Single A may, in fact, even be unnecessary because the cost of capital is so low on an absolute level. No company complains to us about capital being too expensive or unavailable.
1: Which this is the reason why you're seeing the triple B rated segment of the investment broad market right. uh, grow so much faster with record pace of issuance so far this year and nearly $3 trillion of US debt outstanding.
2: Right, and interestingly, what you are seeing is on some companies who have been kind of the poster children for being at risk of dropping into high yield, the fallen angel risk, so G would be the one that really pops up on people's screens, those companies have shown a real commitment to at least try, and in many cases successfully, maintain that triple b rating so whether it's through asset sales uh cutting down their share buyback reducing their dividend so there is still a focus amongst cfos and corporate boards to try to maintain an investment grade rating in the triple b space so we you know we think that yes it changes the character of the investment grade credit market quite a bit ultimately when we get to a downturn which you know despite the longest rec- you know growth period we've ever had here, we will get to one, Uh, then you may see a greater dislocation as a result of this, you know, large amount of triple B because we will have more fallen angels, there may not be the appetite then to absorb it. So the only shock absorber will be price. So you'll see spreads widen out more than maybe we've seen in other, you know, previous recessionary periods.
0: So, Tony, given kind of what we know about the Fed, we got some more color uh, yesterday. Uh, Given where we are in this economic cycle, as you mentioned, a very long uh, economic growth cycle. What are you at Nuveen doing with your portfolios right now? What kind of adjustments are you making?
2: Sure. So the thing that we've been doing over the course of, I'd say, the last, call it even six to nine months, has been... uh, positioning for the end of the cycle at some point we don't think it's imminent we're not calling for a recession in 2020 but we do think we're late cycle and what that means in terms of defensive positioning is three things really upgrading in quality within whatever segment of fixed income you're in emerging markets high yield investment credit upgrading in quality upgrading in liquidity so that you are able to maybe move your portfolio to an area where there is a dislocation when that happens and increasing diversification we don't think there is a you know single pound the table cheap asset out there in the fixed income space but we also since we're not seeing a recession you want to be exposed broadly to the greater income that's available versus sitting in a very defensive you know in the bunker positioning of you know cash and treasuries
1: well, it's quite a it's quite a needle to thread, and I do wonder how concerned you are about uh, the fact that your peers are doing something similar and they're fi- they're moving up in credit quality. We hear that a lot, and what you're seeing in the market is that the up in credit quality uh, debt is actually uh, giving you very little relative to history and relative to other aspects. So, are, are you worried that it's sort of overpriced at this point, uh, given that that appetite?
2: Right. Yeah, you always do worry about a consensus trade, right, that everybody's on the same side of the boat. The one thing I would say is that while we're upgrading quality, we have not abandoned completely, for example, the high yield market, which would be in terms of the higher risk segments of the market, high yield, emerging markets, triple B debt. We're not abandoning those areas at all. We still think, in fact, there's value to be found. It's just that we're not digging into the triple C segment very much, although there's occasional uh, opportunities there. I think the biggest thing that you need to make sure you have as an investor is an ability in this type of market to do the fundamental credit work to distinguish between the triple Bs that are an opportunity and those that will be a very likely fallen angel or the single Bs that could be declining. So the premium on strong credit research, I think is higher now as you enter this late cycle with some of these imbalances along the credit quality scale than it would have been in previous cycles.
0: All right, let me ask just a weird question. Just right off of what you just said, credit analysis, credit research, The credit research departments don't exist on the sell side anymore. I mean, when I was there, we had 20, 30, 40, 50 people doing credit research. That doesn't exist anymore. What do do you guys do about that?
2: Well, primarily, you do have to rely on your own internal credit research. I I would argue that, you know, over time, really, the credit research from the sell side, you know, while some was very high quality and truly just – you know, effective at determining relative value. A lot of it was maybe just supporting, say, the syndicate desk in the new issue market and the trading positions. Um, so so I think that the credit departments internally at the asset management firms have grown over time. We have over 50. We're one of the largest uh, in the business in that space because the value you can get from identifying, you know, real opportunities is enormous right now. When you think of how compressed yields are globally, compressed spreads, the opportunity really is in doing that bottom-up work, whether it's on a sovereign, in emerging space, or on a credit.
1: Tony, how much do uh, political developments in the United States factor in, if at all, to your investing uh, thesis?
2: They definitely do, because just broader uncertainty is certainly something that raises the level of volatility and the potential risk in a market. And the political uncertainty, not only in the U.S., but we think globally with what's been taking place, whether it's around Brexit or other areas of the world, the political uncertainty is high. So we are paying more attention to that than we'd probably like to, (laughs) And, uh, and therefore tapping into different sources for finding as much good political insight as you can, because it is... Dramatically impacting potential policy, whether it's on specific industries or broad issues like trade policy, tax policy, regulatory policy, it's pretty critical.
1: So, what do you think would happen if President Trump gets impeached? What's the market response?
2: You know, I think it's considered to be, uh, in terms of in the House, you know, such an obvious that that's going to happen that right now the market certainly convinced that nothing would happen in the Senate. So, I think it really creates maybe just some short-term noise, but I don't think it'll change anything really fundamentally.
0: How do you guys factor in the all the geopolitical issues that uh, the market has to deal with every day and Lisa and I have to report on every day, whether it's China trade. That we love uh, reporting reporting on every day. (laughs) We love reporting on every day. Yeah, let me rephrase that. Uh, Brexit comes to mind and so on and so forth. Um, How does that factor into kind of what you guys do day to day.
2: Sure, well, you have to factor in higher risk premiums for that, for example, because it's not only the the political, you know, call it noise or issues, they actually create fundamental issues. So Hong Kong, as you just saw, right, recession, you know, negative three plus percent growth quarter over quarter. So that political noise does, in fact, drive true fundamental economic and earnings, um, you know, results. Tony Rodriguez, thank
1: you so much for being here with us all the way from Minneapolis. Head of Fixed Income Strategy at Nuveen. Uh, Have a wonderful Halloween. We're very pleased to say we have with us Christina Hooper, Invesco Chief Global Market Strategist. Christina, how often do you feel like Chief Political Strategist at this point?
3: Well, it often happens, but it's usually in the context of speaking with clients who are worried about it and really need help um, making sense of the noise, what's really important and what isn't. So what do you tell them? Well, what I tell them is we have to look at those events that actually have an impact on economic policy. So for example, what I think is, is the big news today is is of course China coming out and saying that it's unlikely uh, to see anything beyond phase one of the trade deal come to fruition. That to me is what's the real news today and that which truly impacts economic policy.
0: So what do you think, just staying with the China news, um, what do you think the market is kind of discounting? Is it just a phase one type of light deal or does anybody really believe that we'll get anything meaningful?
3: I think the market has been incredibly optimistic. Anytime there's been positive news flow around uh, the US-China trade situation, it's always assumed the best. And so I think actually, more than just phase one has been priced in and that's why we're seeing a stock sell stock market sell off today
1: how surprising is this though i mean we knew that phase one was sort of this peripheral deal or not perfect i should say superficial deal uh that would get the parties to phase two in a sort of save the face kind of way all around what's new
3: there isn't. This is Groundhog Day over and over again. Thank you. Again. Yes, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> you're
1: like you're living the same story. But markets again.
3: continue to get overly excited and positive about any news. Um, it's it's wishful thinking, and unfortunately, the market continues to get let down.
0: All right. Let's focus a little bit more on fundamentals. Um, switch gears. What was your takeaway from the FOMC meeting uh, yesterday and Chairman Powell's comments? Is that did it change your view of kind of how you guys wanna be positioned?
3: It didn't, but it certainly gave a lot more clarity than we often get from Chair Powell. Uh, I think there was a little trepidation that they would remove the language that that they did remove, Um, but he was able to come back in that press conference and make investors feel more confident about the market because it appears as though the Fed is going to be sitting on its hands for a while uh, before it ever considers raising rates. I
1: coined a new phrase this morning, Alice in Wonderland market, hawkish <laughs> cut, negative rates, these contradiction in terms. I'm wondering how you're sort of deciding how to position next in light of the earnings that we're getting the things that are not uh, you know, sort of wishy-washy, uh, complex, uh, complicated uh, contradictions contradictory uh, phrases. Are you seeing this latest 3Q earnings season as a positive sign for the US economy?
3: Well, it is positive, but modestly positive. And I, I say that because companies have become very good at managing expectations and meeting or exceeding them. So this was certainly a positive earnings season, but we have to recognize that probably the the more positive theme as we head into 2020 is that the Fed is relatively accommodative. We just don't have enough visibility on what earnings is going to be like for all of 2020. But we do have more visibility, I think, after, today, after yesterday today's press conference in terms of what the Fed may do. So unless we see a significant spike in inflation, we're likely to see continued low rates.
0: So in this environment, again, continued low, low rates, uh, late cycle, uh, slowing growth, still growth in the U.S. economy, but slowing. Are there sectors that you feel more comfortable with right now versus some others?
3: Well, it's all a question of timing, because um, for the last uh, few weeks and possibly a bit longer, um, value has looked attractive. The cyclical names have looked attractive, because we saw a steepening of the yield curve. Um, That seems to be changing today. I do think the longer term, uh, if we look out for the next 6 to 12 months, is likely to be, again, growth outperforming value. And so that would drive me to tech, Um, not the cyclical tech names, but the more secular growth names uh, as an area that continue to perform well. So uh, software, for example, um, cloud computing, uh, those areas where we're seeing uh, very nice levels of of growth.
0: We had some good numbers out just on the tech front last night, Apple and Facebook. So does that give you, I'm not sure what your exposure is there, but at least it appears that the consumer facing technology continues to be quite strong.
3: It does, it does. Technology continues to be the go-to place for corporate spending as well. Um, in an environment where you have a tight labor market, we're likely to see companies spend more on innovation, spend more on technology that enables productivity. So while we're seeing a decline in business investment overall, I think we'll see more dollars allocated to technology going forward. And we are seeing uh, today
1: uh, Apple shares as well as Facebook shares rising after beating expectations. Apple shares up two percent. Facebook up three and a quarter percent. We're speaking with Christina Hooper, Invesco chief global market strategist. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but it is Philosophical Thursday. And earlier today, (laughs) on this program program right here, you heard it first. Um, You know, we did get Twitter announcing that they were going to uh, strip out uh, political ads this morning. Shares fell, perhaps in response to that, perhaps in response to something else. Meanwhile, Facebook coming out, adding subscribers, not taking a similar measure. Shares popping. What does that tell you about investors and how much they care about some of the sort of social implications uh, that, is, that are talked a lot about in Washington, DC,
3: but aren't necessarily uh, doing anything? You hit the nail on the head. They've been talked about for a while. And so until we actually see the issues coming at us um, in very, very close uh, proximity, investors aren't gonna worry about it. We've had that overhang of greater regulation hanging over tech for a long time now.
1: Totally, but it makes me wonder, all these people saying that ESG filters are so important to them, and they're looking at all of these, like, so, at the social consequences, uh, they're not making much traction here because it doesn't seem to matter. Am I wrong?
3: Uh, you're right, but we're looking at a snapshot in time, and I think ESG will be one of those factors that, over time, uh, rewards those companies that it believes are um, more in keeping with with the values of ESG. But over the shorter term, I think what we're going, what we're, we're likely to see is reaction to the democratic primaries that this could be um, this could be where you actually start to see some nervousness filter into tech prices um, for those companies that are, are perhaps on the front lines of potential regulation um, depending upon which candidates do best in in certain primaries.
0: Just real quickly, um, any sectors that you're just or any asset classes you're just staying away from right here?
3: Well, I think we need to be very well diversified. So there's no asset class that I can say we, sh- we should have no exposure to. But I would say that this is an important time to be emphasizing dividends. So all else being equal, um, in a given sector, migrate to those with, that are fundamentally solid but have a dividends. Christina Hooper, thank you. It's Thank you. Always wonderful having you.
1: Thank you. Christina because Hooper, Invesco Chief Global Market Strategist, joining us here in our Investor, in our Interactive Brokers studios.
0: Let's bring in uh, Mark Stokel. He's CEO and Portfolio Manager of Adam's Funds. Mark, thanks so much for joining us here on our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. You know, this today's impeachment is just another piece of quote-unquote noise uh, that investors have to deal with. It's trade, it's Brexit. How do you suggest investors should kind of factor in or factor out the noise in their investment
4: process? Well, it's it's a really good question, and it's something that we are pretty passionate about because one of the concerns that we have is most of the time when um, uh, there are uneasy things happening. Investors get nervous, they get scared, and their first reaction because it's easy is to trade, and they'll trade out of their positions. And you know, there's, a, there's a statistic that is, is actually troublesome, and most individual investors that invest in the SPY, just the regular S&P 500 ETF, do not get the S&P 500 ETF return because they trade. And you know I, th- I think it's it's uh, trying to be number one, intellectually honest about how much risk you should be taking, given where you are in your life and what you're saving for. Number two, decide what asset classes you want to be invested in, and leave it alone. There's a lot of noise, and a lot of this noise tends not to really matter at the end of the day. It will matter today, might tomorrow, might for a week. But the idea that it's it, it scares you into trading is exactly the wrong thing. Yeah. You know over time, bull markets, last twice as long as bear markets. The markets go up over time. And if you're, again, if you're intellectually honest about how much risk you wanna take and you invest, leave it alone. Doesn't mean you can't adjust if something changes in your life, but you really do need to stay invested in order to really get the power of compounding uh, that long-term investing offers.
1: So why have active managers? Why not just, uh, as you know, a person creating a retirement fund just put their money in SPY and and leave it there until they're older and they rejigger it and make it safer?
4: They they could. Uh, the, the the problem is you you uh, take away any opportunity to outperform that. And I think that one of the thing is an active manager. If you're not choosing active manager, is okay. That what you so, meant?
1: But but yes, exactly. But then the question is, as an active manager, how do you know when to trade? Given the noise, what, what, what's the sort of threshold to change? Okay, I, I,
4: I see what you're saying. Um, the, you, you need to try to tune out the noise and concentrate as best you can on data. If you concentrate on data, that will lead you to place that, that will lead you to decisions that we think are better decisions, as opposed to, "I can't believe that X,Y,Z happened. Maybe we should get more defensive." Well, maybe not. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe that's not the right answer, um, and you know, defensive stocks might be might be in vogue, might not be. But I think it's 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 the, the concept of trying to tune it out and have a longer term perspective. And again, as I said earlier, part of the problem here is it's easy to trade. All of these companies have made it incredibly easy to trade, and, um, which is fine, and it's cheaper, which is great. Uh, but most people should be in it for the, a longer term and, and just try their best to, to tune out the noise. And again, as I said, if, if you're trading, you are not getting the benefit of compounding, which over the time is an incredibly powerful concept.
0: What in the Adam's funds, how are you positioned right now? We're 10 plus years into this economic cycle. Um, you know That's getting people to think about, gee, do I need to be out reallocating my assets here for what the next five years is likely to be
4: probably lower growth than the last five. How are you positioned? Uh, we we are positioned looking for uh, stocks that we believe can outperform the S&P 500. So in some respects, we're a little different because our bogey is to try to outperform the S&P 500. We've been fortunate, we've been able to do that very well. Um, but so that, that's different than somebody who's looking for an absolute return. I mean, our, uh, the, the, the way that we manage the fund is we're sector neutral, which means we have the same weightings in healthcare and technology in all the sectors as the S&P 500. We add our value by selecting the right stocks within each of those sectors. Um, there's been a lot of debate about uh, growth versus value. Um, you know, we tend to be core managers, and I think that one of the challenges with growth versus value is everybody today, I believe, is guessing that it's time to go into value. There really isn't much in the way of empirical data to, to, to convince us that the, 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 the growth uh, win over value is going to change any time. So, again, I go back to, to data. I would, I would prefer to see, rather than say, I think right now is the right time, you could have said that a year ago, two years ago, five years ago. You could have said that. So, we would prefer to see value stocks begin to have an inflection point versus growth. And that to us would lead, lead us to believe that now is maybe a better time to begin to look at value. Take Facebook and, 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 and uh, Apple that reported yesterday. So, they reported really good quarters. Um, so, your, your, your value alternative is IBM, Cisco, Oracle. So I, I, I don't believe that this is, this is the time to, to just put a stake in the ground and say, it's a really good time to go to value. We would prefer to see data tell us that in fact, they're, they're, they, they are uh, producing better revenues, better earnings, and they're sustainable.
1: So Mark, what's your highest conviction stock pick right now?
4: Microsoft. It's our biggest overweight in the fund is Microsoft.
1: All right, and what's your, uh, what's your thesis?
4: The Microsoft thesis does revolve a lot around the cloud. Um, it's uh, they, they, do a lot of, they do a lot of really good things, but the cloud to us has a lot more runway to go than I think a lot of people expect. We think there's at least five-year runway in the cloud. They, they've proven they are a really good uh, competitor to uh, Amazon's uh, uh, AWS, uh, Azure has, has proven that. The other thing that I think is really important is, in the cloud, we've seen higher revenue go in, uh, higher revenue in the cloud companies a lot of that is not prices going up, but companies buying buying cloud equipment and fi- buying cloud equipment for leverage and, and hoping to, to, to be able to do that and realizing they can get a lot more leverage. They're, they're buying more equipment as opposed to prices are going up significantly. So I think that's a that's a that's a, a, a good guidepost to. There's there's a lot of momentum here, yeah. and they're really good at it.
1: Mark Stuckel, thank you so much for being with us, Chief Executive Officer and Portfolio Manager for Adam's Funds.
0: Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at P.T. Sweeney.
1: I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.